Before we start, if you're enjoying these conversations, please make sure that you like or subscribe to Cleaning Up. It really helps other people to find us. Cleaning Up is brought to you by Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation, and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, I'm Michael Liebreich, and this is Cleaning Up. There's a vibrant discussion going on right now across Europe and in the UK about the structure of electricity markets. The gas price spike caused by the bounce back from COVID and, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is driving up electricity prices to an extreme extent. And that's because the gas price is setting power prices even for cheap renewable resources. There's a variety of proposals for how to fix this various tweaks, price caps, maybe splitting the market, and so on. My guest on Cleaning Up today is Yanis Varoufakis, and he has a different plan. He would nationalize the lot. Yanis is an academic economist and a politician. He's the founder of a Greek political party, Mera 25, and very famously was the finance minister who tried to renegotiate Greece's national debt in 2015. Please welcome Yanis Varoufakis to Cleaning Up. So, Yanis, thank you very much for joining us here on Cleaning Up. It's a great pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. Now, we are we're doing this at uh, a very stressful moment in history uh, with what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in the, uh, the energy markets, energy prices for average people are seeing their energy prices absolutely soaring. So... Uh, that's really the topic for today. And I suspect it's a topic you're doing, uh, you're, you're talking about all the time. Is that right? Absolutely. Incessantly. <laughs> now, the most recent uh, piece of yours that I read was in Project Syndicate. And you mm -hmm. wrote a piece called, uh, um, it had this very uh, provocative title, Time to Blow Up Electricity Markets. Maybe we'll come onto the specifics of the blowing up of the electricity markets, but could you give us your overview of, we're going to start really on, on energy markets overall, and we can, go into, we can go into politics, macroeconomics, the electricity mm -hmm. markets we'll definitely talk about, but give us your overview of the energy situation that we face now in Europe. The idea of electricity markets is a contradiction in terms. It always was. The simple reality is that it is a natural monopoly and it can be nothing other than a natural monopoly. There is only one wire coming out of your wall, whether it's your home, or your office or your factory. Uh, we don't have, and we shouldn't have, 50, 60 different wires coming out of our walls uh, corresponding to 50 or 60 different companies that produce it and distribute it because it would be highly inefficient. Imagine having 50 overlapping grids running through uh, the land and the buildings and the, the, the urban areas. So there's a, there's a national monopoly, there's one wire. Huh? And then what happens is you have the government, the state coming in, simulating a market, uh, creating circumstances that um, um, at the best of times, create a semblance of a marketplace marketplace of power generators and the marketplace of supposedly providers who buy in bulk electricity from the power generators. So you see, it used to be the case that the left and the right, 
we used to have you know these uh, interminable fights and and debates regarding the efficiency of the market and whether the, the, the whether the state should step in to regulate but when it comes to electricity there can be no market unless the state creates a quasi market something that resembles a market uh, i always thought that this was madness <laughs> madness in action and the the the, the depth and width of the madness becomes apparent when you have an energy crisis. Uh, when, the, you know, the, the, the costs of producing electricity skyrocket, uh, at least partially when it comes to natural gas currently or oil in the 1970s or coal during an industrial dispute like, you know, back in the early 70s in Britain and the 1984 with the miners' strike. And now what we have is a situation where the wholesale and deep-seated irrationality of um, the notion of an electricity market is coming to the surface as a result of the escalation of the price of the uh, of the one fuel which um, provides the marginal cost of uh, you know the pricing system and that's natural gas and of course we've seen the price of natural gas soaring um, and and you're saying that it's it's that combined with this natural monopoly, which is leading to the pain and the, the, that's felt on the utility bills? Yes, but it's look, think, if you look at the UK, the UK has done magnificently well, along with some other countries like Denmark, in um, installing renewables. You know, so more than half of your electricity comes from renewables. So it shouldn't be affected at all by the, the price of natural gas. Why is it affected by the price of natural gas? Why is it that you know your electricity bills, even though 52, 53%, if I'm not mistaken, of your, your electricity comes primarily from wind farms? Uh, why is it that um, you have the same crisis that we have here in Greece, where we have a very much, much, much smaller penetration of renewables? The reason is because you have marginal cost pricing. Because you jump in there because. That, that it was the, when you said marginal cost pricing. I mean, I'm an energy wonk, so I'm like, you know, bzz, I immediately jump up. And the marginal cost pricing, just to explain, our audience are not, you know, uh, they're, they're knowledgeable, but they're not technical. That means that the price of the kind of last unit of energy required to meet demand is the price that applies right across the whole supply. So even if it's cheap wind, cheap solar, cheap anything, cheap nuclear, or cheaper than the gas is driving the price. Now, that why why is that what's that got to do with the fact that there's only one wire into the building well i think well allow me to, to to say it in my own more exaggerated terms because sometimes exaggerating helps make a, make a point so imagine that you had 100 kilowatt hours produced uh, in the united kingdom and 99 of them were free free zero zero, zero cost yeah just, you know, God was providing it for free. <laughs> you know, wind was providing it for free. And one of them was produced by very expensive, imported, liquefied natural gas from Texas. Right? <laughs> okay, then all the 99 ones, plus the one that is produced by LNG, would be charged at a, at a price reflecting the cost of the expensive Texan LNG. That's what marginal cost pricing is. Now, if you have a monopoly, or indeed a monopsonistic competitive market. That is a market with quite a lot of market power amongst those who are providing the good. 
or the service. Uh, it's very natural, is it not, that um, the marginal cost, the cost, the most expensive, you know, the, the cost of the final unit is going to be the price that um, applies for every unit. So if you and I were producing widgets, right, and um, every widget had a different cost, so the first few widgets that we, we, we produced uh, cost us a lot of money, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, we would charge one price for every widget, but not every widget would provide us with the same price cost margin because some of them would be cheaper to make than others. Okay. Now, we would continue to produce widgets, you know, your company, the Michael and Yannis company, we would continue to produce widgets and sell them as long as the next widget that we would sell would give us more money than it cost us, as long as the marginal revenue was greater than the marginal cost. When would we stop producing widgets? We would stop producing widgets when the last widget that we produced cost us the same as the revenue that we brought in. Okay, that's the condition for our profit to be maximized, that the revenue from the, from the last unit we produced equals the cost of producing that last widget. So that's the marginal cost price. Okay, so it, that means that, means that, you know, if we produce N widgets, the N minus one give us a higher profit margin, N minus two a higher profit margin, N minus three a higher profit margin. Now that happens when you and I are running a monopoly over widgets. Naturally, when the government simulates a marketplace for a natural monopoly like electricity with one wire coming out of the house, the same thing applies. So you have a situation where you know, you've got all this free energy being produced by wind farms in the North Sea, and you pay for these kilowatt hours as if they were produced by the high. Now, that is a scandal because but, but, you have the government playing the role of the monopolist or actually allowing the privateers who are now uh, utilizing this uh, privatized uh, utility, electricity, to extract monopoly profits out of the population. And that is a scandal. It, it is. I mean, it has turned out scandalous, right? You, we're not. I'm not going to disagree with with that. It is, you know, it's it's outrageous that people may, you know, producing electricity cheaply are being paid these uh, super rents, right? They're they're completely unexpected. I can tell you, I talk to financiers, developers all the time. None of them invested in wind offshore in the UK, saying, ah. You know, Vladimir Putin one day will invade and then we'll make our money. None of them. They that's completely okay. unexpected excess rents. The um, but the the there are other you know there are other um, ways of structuring the market. So right now, um, big discussions about capping the prices from various resources. So you could say right. Wind never costs more than X to produce, and so therefore the price, you know, the price it receives should never be more than Y, and you have some margin, and that's being discussed. Um, my own proposal, which I put out there, was to split the market and say, look, fundamentally, we want, you know, what, what's happening is the system was designed around. It was designed in a time when nuclear and coal, which are two things that need to run twenty four seven, were cheap and then the gas was allowed to be at the margin because it was the peaking resource mm. but of course we don't live in that world anymore now we have these very large amounts of zero marginal cost renewables and we fundamentally need to restructure the markets now your reaction um is is 
it's a monopoly and therefore, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it should be nationalized. It should be one single provider. You're not and, well, um, whereas I suppose mine is, well, why not reform the market to remove the excess, which has been revealed by the current price spike in gas, um, but but why, you know, why, why throw, why throw away uh, a system that actually, for decades, has produced pretty good outcomes? It hasn't actually produced really good outcomes. It's produced pretty miserable outcomes, except that they were not that painful because the price of natural gas was not that great. But let me answer your your question directly. Uh, first, a preface. And um, what you are proposing is what I'm proposing for the short term. Because even if you made me prime minister today, God forbid, <laughs> um, uh, I would do what you're suggesting. It's what I've been proposing from day one, from back in February, which is, you know, um, cap the wholesale price from each different unit of output of production uh, in proportion to the average cost, not the marginal cost, the average cost of each production unit. So um, hydroelectric. How much does it cost? What's the average fixed cost? Oh, sorry, the average um, total cost of um, hydro? It's 25. Okay. Cap it at 30. Let the provider have a small profit, but nothing exorbitant. What is it from, uh, from, from uh, wind farms? What is it from solar? What is it from gas? What is it from coal? Because we still have some coal here in Greece, unfortunately. Um, and then, you know, effectively, uh, cap different wholesale prices such that the actual price is no more than say 5% of average total cost. So that we agree on that one, what needs to happen. Where we probably disagree is when I say that, look, this is a bit weird what we're doing. There was no such thing as a market. The state came in to create a market which failed and then the state comes in to regulate the market that it created. That's madness. Why do we need that? But let, let me come back to this question of the natural monopoly. We can't have because, a market at all when we can't have a yeah, market that works. But, <laughs> but, but your claim that you can't have a market because there's one wire, why can't you just regulate the wire? I mean, are you saying we should nationalize um, fiber internet provision because we're only going to have one fiber? So the internet should also be nationalized. Or what else do you want to nationalize on the basis that it's that it's only, you know, it feels to me like there are lots of things that have only one resource, you know, one delivery platform. Um, I mean, even, you know, we're going to regulate social media players. Uh, and in fact, we regulate, um, you know, Don't media players because they are, you know, sort of pseudo monopolies. What's wrong with regulation? Why does that drive you to nationalization as the solution? Well, it's a question of, uh, of efficiency. Uh, in the case of, um, the, look, there are some, I mean, you, you, you mentioned, um, telephony and communications and optic fiber and so on. Well, firstly, it is perfectly possible to have multiple ways of connecting to the internet, just op not just optic fiber. And there are some, I mean, for instance, my home is connected to three different optic fibers and there's no problem with that. So the same thing as electricity. Optic fibers are much thinner. They're much, you know, you, you can even have wireless connections. You can't have that with electricity. Electricity is closer to water than it is to telephony and to the internet. So when it comes to water and electricity, I'm adamant about that, that um, only profiteering um, 
and profiteering companies have a vested interest in uh, in pretending that we can have a market or that we should have a market that is regulated. Okay. So, uh, when it, when it comes to social media, this is a big discussion. That uh, you know, do we want social media that is regulated or not? I happen to be more of a libertarian when it comes to that. I hate the social media that we have, but at the same time, I don't believe that the state stepping in and regulating them is the solution. So for me, it's horses for courses. If may, if I may it's use. It's not a blanket. That. It's not a blanket. Sort of, it's it's some kind of national natural monopoly or network monopoly, and therefore, but. But the thing is that the wire into the home that you're talking about, I mean, there's a there's a transmission grid, distribution grid, and then the distribution grid goes into your home. But mm -hmm. you go much further than that. You say the whole thing needs a, needs yep. to be blown up, to use yep. your words, even the generating side. So, yeah. you'd, you, you know, you would presumably applaud, you know, Keir Starmer has come out in the UK and said he wants to have GB energy, which will invest in energy generation. And presumably, you would like it to own all of the energy generation. Is that right? I would. You know, I would. And you know why? Because um, we have a very pressing task ahead, which is the transition to renewables, which is the transition to a different kind of network. Um, we need very quickly to move away from the economies of scale factory-based notion of power generation. Uh, the future is smart decentralized grids with very, very small uh, units of producing generating electricity, whether these are solar, combination of solar and small windmills and uh, uh, heat pumps and um, you know small green hydrogen producing um, units. Uh, that needs to be grounded in the communities. Communities must have um, ownership rights over both the electricity that these generate and the actual machinery. Uh, so we need to think much in, in a much more decentralized fashion, but that needs to be designed. So instead of a market which is dominated in the end by the very large players that uh, either ex enjoy exorbitant profits rents effectively, or go bust, and then they need to be bailed out all the time. I mean, think of what is going on now, what has been happening over the last year, what has been revealed is that even companies that, may, that, 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 that charge very high price cost margins are more or less bankrupt because as private profit maximizers, they seek to hedge their, uh, in, in, in their future prices. So they, you have this absurd situation where you've got companies that make hefty rents being bankrupt at the same time because they have, they have borrowed so heavily in order to invest in derivatives that stabilize their long-term electricity prices. And now they are facing margin calls because they never had the money to pay for these derivatives. They borrowed in order to pay for these derivatives using collateral as collateral future electricity bills. So you know, the market that the state has, has, has um, created following the Thatcherite privatization of uh, the Central Electricity Board back then, that market is absurd. It is just an abomination. But and I, it can be nothing other than an right. abomination. But I do think we've got to be very careful about the value chain we're talking about here. So mm. 
in the UK, the companies that have gone bankrupt have been retailers. And what they did was they sold electricity contracts to homes, to businesses, and then were buying in the wholesale markets, largely in the wholesale markets, uh, to fulfill that. And the wholesale prices shot up mm -hmm. and they had sold. So they had sold long at low prices and they had to buy. So that, but their margins, they were never, you know, the, your classic sort of evil oligopolists, vast profits. They were actually making very low profits even before because all they were doing is buying and selling. They were kind of passing it through. Why do we need them, Michael? Sorry? Why do we need them? Well, you could argue that... You the know, is a homogeneous product. Hang on a second. Michael, it's absurd. We shouldn't, ha we shouldn't have those companies. Well, you, you know, you uh, say that, but on the other hand, when, when we had a monopoly... Make profit that, is, yeah. uh, that, that is not a return to any entrepreneurial effort. I mean, you say that, but actually they are entrepreneurial, yeah. right? If Why? you talk to Greg, uh, Greg Jackson at, uh, at Octopus, yeah. and I had him on this show, he is innovating. For instance, the only what person... Wait, let me, let, let, let me tell you. Business. It's the same thing. I'll tell you exactly. If you give me a second, yeah. right? Octopus is the only company that has got what they call the agile tariff. So they've got time of day pricing. In other words, he is delivering a price signal to you so that you know when to run your washing machine or whatever or, or charge your electric car at a time which is enormously value creating given the variable renewables that we increasingly have on the system. This is a huge innovation and it's can, a valuable can, innovation. Can, that, and it didn't, it, it didn't come from CEGB. I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm not impressed. A postgraduate student can create such a software, a piece of software that does that for a publicly owned provider of distributor of electricity. This is all rubbish. This is okay. to, 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 you know, to, to explain why they need to exist. They don't need but, to but exist. But name, name a publicly owned utility. Has, has your utility in Greece produced such a product? No, right? But name one state-owned utility which is providing time-of-day pricing to retail consumers. None. Right. We, you know, OK, I come from a different so political tradition. Is that your argument as to why we need a market for electricity? Hang on. EDF <laughs> in, in, in France has, you know, has the capacity of pro, you know, providing these, uh, the, the, these pieces of software very easily. And in any case, you know, the privatization of the British uh, electricity market was simply nationalization by the wrong state because EDF bought most of it. Um, there, there is no doubt that, that a, a privateer can come up with interesting little ideas that we could adopt. And I'm sure that, that private individuals have much to contribute to a decentralized but publicly owned uh, neighborhood-based uh, um, you know, renewables-heavy uh, electricity grid. To say so let, that, let, yeah. So let, let's yeah. move to the, the you know, you've got the, you've got the grid, the national grid, which is, which is heavily regulated, natural monopoly. But let's go to the other end. You know, the, um, the, the idea of, the, I'm, I'm, by the way, a big, a big fan of community-owned um, uh, mm. solar and wind and so on. Uh, and I've, you know, done lots over the years, over the decades to try to promote that. Mm. Um, but there's a couple of things, though. First of all, the bulk of renewables comes from, you know, vast offshore wind in northern Europe mm -hmm. and vast solar in southern Europe and combinations of those. And the community in no way has the capital access to produce those things. Absolutely. And I would argue, and I was on the I was on a, on a call this morning with um, just listening in to um, uh, a developer of a portfolio of renewables projects. 
the detailed work, even for a 20, 30 megawatt solar project, the amount of detailed work that needs to be done to develop that project, to finance that project, to do all of the environmental assessments, to do this, to do that. The idea that either some nice kind of, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, com ideal community or that some vast state monopoly could do that detailed work across literally thousands and tens of thousands of projects. I mean, I find it, you know, I, 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 I don't know. How can I put it? I'm just not seeing it. Well, that's ideology for you. Your ideology is not allowing you to see it. <laughs> what was the internet, Michael? What was the internet, the first internet, not internet web two? Oh, very web. easy, very simple. So the first internet was developed by, um, uh, you know, out of CERN, there was the technology, there was a backbone that came out of the academic community. And you know when it really took off? When there were thousands, I lived through this, this was part of my history, right? There were exactly. thousands and thousands of ISPs, private companies, using risk capital no, no, to do no, no, crazy no, no. things like buy modems and buy phone lines and market products to people who didn't understand them. That's the way it really happened. Well, you know, I, I happen to be more or less your age too, so I have, it's a shared history, but we may have different perspectives of the shared history. The point I'm making about Web1, uh, and let's see if we can find common ground on that, was that it was a... Uh, it was created by big state, by big state authorities like the Pentagon to begin with, right? And yep. uh, state funding and research, uh, to which the Janet Network, the Joint Academic Network, was uh, fused, with public universities playing a, a significant role in this. Uh, and then you had um, an Internet Commons of privateers that was added, very much like you are describing it. Uh, that produced protocols that we still use today, like HTTP and SMTP and so on, that still use them today um, as um, a commons. Didn't charge a penny for it. Uh, so you have the combination of the state and the community working hand in hand. That was the best period of the internet until you had big tech taking over and um, effectively turning it into a dystopic internet, the one that we have today. That's my view. So the idea of public infrastructure, public you're absolutely right. Local communities cannot create the technology which is necessary at the local level in order to maximize the benefits of the community and to connect to the broader network. I agree. This is why it needs to be publicly owned with... Um, Effectively, creating, opening it up to uh, you know, smart uh, startups, um, companies that are um, that you want to use this grid in order to, to to try out their own technologies for maximizing the efficiency of local generation and so on, create an ecosystem, but move well away from the model of uh, you know the factory like. Um, either nuclear power station or you know lignite or coal-fired power station, which is by 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 construction an oligopolist's delight. So, a publicly uh, owned and run and planned and designed network, which gives space to small companies with very little market power to try out their expertise and try to gain 
uh, in the short term from you know, amass economic grants from uh, genuine innovation. Innovation, however, that does not lead to them cornering a natural monopolistic market. So who is deciding prices in this world? Because you do have, you know, you, you've got a grid at one end, you need to feed stuff in and you need information to, you know, you need information and electricity to flow across some sort of network, mm -hmm. right? And and so there's much to, much that we do agree on. So I, I, you know, it's clearly the role of the state to ensure that there is such a network and it's the role of the state to ensure the protocols both for the electricity and for the information, but who sets prices? So if you've got a battery in the Auckland, in, in, in the Orkney Islands, or you've got a solar panel on my roof, which I don't think you want the state to own the solar panel. You're okay with private. Of course. I, I, I want to smile and call it rent seekers like me, but you're okay with private individuals owning resources. But who's going to set the price? How are the prices going? How are you going to allocate space on the network between all of these literally millions of different players? Each wants to feed in, each wants to take out, and so on. How do you allocate that? Well, this, the grid will have to have a base load to begin with. Hmm? There has to be, there will have, at least during the transition period to, re, to pull renewables, there have to be some base load stations. Uh, and though, Base load stations, yeah. Meaning some a, stations that. What is your definition? What definition are you well, using? I mean, today you have, to, you know, to, today for instance, you have some large natural gas using facilities. You have nuclear stations. Yeah, these are providing the base load to the system as we speak. Yanis, Greece has just done the first five hours with 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 only renewables. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure. It's just that the reason I jump I'm, on I base load is it's kind of a I'd everybody has a different definition. So you're postulating I mean, some in Greece, it's natural gas, hydro, and lignite. Yeah. These are the base load providers. Yeah. And as you said, it was actually we, we did the whole 24 hours last week. A whole 24 Congratulations. hours. Congratulations. Very sunny days and and very windy nights. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of hydro. To be fair, it, this is so. The, in the UK, the national, the national, yeah, the, na the national grid in the UK is targeting 2025 to be able to switch off all of the um, all of the, the the thermal power stations, the ones that spin and, and provide all the inertia, uh, hmm. and then run only on you know potentially wind, solar, and some small amounts of hydro. Okay, I mean the reason why we have hydro is we have we have tall mountains, and you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Some in Scotland, that's all. Now, the look, the, 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 the answer to your question is a good question. Who sets the prices? Uh, if, if you look at, take any oligopolistic model, right? Any oligopoly. In a, if you want to, to, to regulate an oligopoly, a duopoly, let's say, right? There are two ways of doing it. One is um, to set a price cap. And the other is to take over one of the two producers and use public ownership of the, of, the, of the producer to set prices low in order to force the privateer to follow through and also reduce price. Otherwise, they will lose their market. Now, my view is that in this publicly owned grid, the state that needs to control, at least in the first phases, the larger, um, what I call the baseline, the baseload producers, they can, you know, the state can lead 
price formation through a policy of um, average cost pricing plus 5%. In order to give space to privateers to operate without giving them an opportunity to extract uh, massive economic rents. So, yeah, so if I've understood, let me make sure, because this is actually, this is getting really, really interesting. And your your sort of heritage as a microeconomist is, is coming through here, I think. Um, so the state would own some very big resources mm -hmm. and in a sense could set the price because if anybody tries to profiteer, they can just kind of dump some, they can dump some power. So this, does that mean that they're running those resources or are they keeping them kind of in reserve, ready to dump if anybody, you know, if the market misbehaves? Are they Saudi, like Saudi Arabia in the oil markets? Both. Both. It depends on the circumstances. It depends on demand conditions, supply conditions, you know, how the system is running. If the system can run without those uh, uh, large uh, um, power generators uh, functioning, then you keep them in reserve. You don't use them until you have to. Uh, but and, and also, in addition, you have, uh, um, you have social criteria, you have uh, regional development criteria, so you mentioned Orkney or, you know, the Isle of Skye or whatever. Um, the price that should prevail there must be a price which um, is consistent with, uh, um, with preventing those rural areas from becoming deserts, people leaving them. Uh, th there has to be a series of planning parameters which are fed into the planning model to provide so you with the optimal policy. But that optimal policy can never be replicated by trying to um, to simulate a marketplace. That was a. Just have why can't why could you not just have somebody uh, a private player who owns that resource and you say right we want you to deliver the you know uh, deliver these services it's either electricity or capacity that you know we want you to sit there ready to uh, provide and you know you've capped the price because the market uh, you know the marginal cost pricing has produced this you know bad outcomes but why does the state have to own the things uh, the, these these resources it's the own i don't understand the ownership requirement if you if you want to say that okay you, what you can that that you can substitute public ownership with price caps and quantity minima, yes, in theory you could. But what happens if that company says, at the price you are setting for me and the quant minimum quantity you demand of me, I cannot function, I'm, I need a bailout. Well, what happens, yeah. what, what happens there is, um, I mean, essentially what the government has been doing and across you know, all, of, uh, you know, all of Europe is um, setting those quantities and then getting bids and players have been coming yeah. in and bidding yeah, contracts in, different. Make some money and then eventually look at Uniper. Look at Uniper in Germany. They, they had to bail out, be bailed out at huge cost to the taxpayer. Right, but, uh -huh. but the, re the reason there was, the, uh, the reason Uniper has needed a bailout is because they are being forced to buy gas at the international price and they're not allowed effectively to sell it at the international price, at which point you say, fine, then the government has, has to come in. And at that point, there has to be a bailout. But what you're saying is Unipa should never have been a private company over I don't the last any decades in the first place. I see only, only demerits in it being a private company um, and absolutely no benefit whatsoever. So you're not going to tell me that Uniper was innovative in any particular way. It was simply its crowning of a publicly or what should have been a publicly owned uh, system. Look, I mean, the argument there for, uni the there, argument for Uniper, which 
the argument for Uniper, which I, I actually want to move back, back onto something else, but the argument there is it attracted an enormous amount of capital, which the state then did not have to provide uh, through the international bond and equity markets and funded vast and amounts of development time, of resources. And at the same time, it extracted huge rents from society that uh, now are gone and finished. Well, and now, it, now, 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 now the, the you know Mr. Olaf Scholz has to find money it, that he doesn't have, <laughs> but he so will I, never be able to recoup the rents that Uniper has been extracting all these years. Well, I could rephrase that as yes, they've paid a lot of people's pensions. But let's move back to one thing. I want to go back to the uh, the pricing question because I did find that that was that was fascinating, and I'm not sure we finished because um, the markets are not just electricity. Mm -hmm. The market also includes inertia, um, free, you know, so frequency response, backup of various sorts, ramping, you know, because when there's, uh, when, when, when evening comes and the sun goes down, then you have a lot of power falls off the network and you need something to step in and do that. Is that all going to be done in the same way? Because each of these sure. are effectively separate little markets. There's yeah. a market for keeping the, the voltage right. There's a market for the ramping rate. There's a market for what do you do if there's an eclipse? Who is supposed to deal with that? And there are all these it different It's working perfectly also. well. Until Mrs. It, in Britain, it was working, all that was working perfectly well. And the, the, there was some magnificent innovative uh, contribution by universities. I remember uh, people at the University of Birmingham and the University of Manchester contributing to the Central Electricity Board, the you know, competing models back using Fortran, if you remember. <laughs> uh, and they were doing all this very, very nicely before it was all privatized. But two things. First of all, it was a brutally simple world because you had coal mm. and was then it? you had peakers, which at the time were oil and now would be gas. Well, you had coal and the nuclear gas. as well. It was, I mean, was I, I call this... Well. When I describe that era, I call it, you know, <clears throat> I call it baseload and peak, long lunches and knocking off early because it was brutally simple. There was no wind. There was no variability. There was no solar. There was no demand response. There were no solar roofs. There was no electric vehicle charging. It was just such a simple world. And, and we were dramatically overinvested. There was an enormous capital uh, misallocation because, of course, the civil servants who run it, it's always much easier to have too many power stations, too many pylons, too many substations, and then simply charge people. And there was an enormous pushback against that, which you now don't remember, but there was. The standing charge, there were all these riots against, about standing charges. There's always pushback against the, the, the status quo. But allow me to say that, you know, when, when, you, when you're conjuring up the notion or the image of a... Uh, of a long lunch uh, enjoying civil servant, right? I can always counter with the image of those uh, toxic executives boarding their Learjets running around the place. Uh, and at the same time, if you want to remember Enron, laughing at the, the little people and treating them like Muppets, the people that they exploited and the people that they, you know, they, they, they treated like... Um, you know, cattle that whose price was going up or down. Um, so you know, we can we can do that. Let me counter your main point. Your main point. Your main point is that complexity means that simulated markets work better. My point is exactly the opposite. That greater complexity means that a centrally planned system um, utilizing 
modern uh, IT technologies, software in particular, and artificial intelligence is far better placed than a marketplace which is made far more unstable, uh, primarily because of the speculation and the derivatives, the derivative trades that uh, go hand in hand with every one of the of these sub-markets that we mentioned before. So somehow a state-owned monopoly is going to be able to hire these amazing technologists, these are the best data scientists, the best machine learning people, and they're going to be able to optimize somehow centrally planned. Yes, they're going to optimize the supply and demand of electricity yes. in every distributed yes. grid, every little yes. grid of solar yes. roofs and absolutely. demand response, washing machines yes. and, and electric vehicle charging absolutely. down to the most granular level. Yes. I mean, yes. it's not can an I ideological position. Can I, can I give you an example of such a magnificent sure. Sure, sure, sure. functioning? a magnificently functioning centrally planned system, Amazon.com. Amazon.com may be private, but when it comes to its organization, it operates like Gosplan, like the Soviet Union. The fact that it's owned by Jeff Bezos doesn't mean anything. It's one organization. There's no market within Amazon.com. Hmm? There are suppliers and there are buyers, yeah, like you and me, ordering books or whatever from Amazon.com. But the system, the system huh, is a centrally planned system using artificial intelligence, using a series, a sequence of warehouses. The whole thing is a centrally planned system. This is what I'm advocating, except that it should be publicly owned. And yeah, not owned and by you know, the funny thing, the funny thing is you should listen. I really encourage you to listen to the episode with Greg Jackson. Mm -hmm. which was earlier on cleaning up because he is basically building the amazon.com of the uh, of the electricity system mm -hmm. he is he is basically funding wind farms at one end and selling and yeah. using you know time of day pricing which is very much like promotions on amazon at the mm -hmm. other end um but the idea that he would have come out of um of of a centrally planned system is to my mind as ridiculous as suggesting that i don't know that minitel would have produced um, Snapchat and Skype and Zoom and all these other technologies if only it had been allowed to flourish and not destroyed by this evil um, uh, privateers on the internet? Well, let me put it this way. I don't want a snazzy electricity system. And I really do not get moved by the analogy of an electricity system that produces the equivalent of Zoom and TikTok and Facebook and so on. The bloody thing is meant to produce one thing, homogeneous electricity, okay? We do not aim for an output that is heterogeneous and all singing, all dancing. We just want a steady electricity supply that guarantees low prices and ample quantities, especially for the people out there who, as we speak, have no access to cheap electricity or, you know, affordable electricity at a time of a horrendous cost of living crisis. So all this stuff, you know, I'm, I'm as excited by the idea of snazzy, all singing, all, all, all dancing innovations as the next man or woman. But when it comes to electricity, I prefer a boring electricity system that actually makes the smooth transition to green technologies and which guarantees the many out there who are struggling an electricity supply that uh, prevents 
energy poverty from being the other, the flip side of the coin of huge economic rents for very few smart guys. I think I mean, there's lots to agree with. I'm being, you know, and, and the, the people listening on the podcast, by the way, what they would not be able to maybe pick up, the people who watch on YouTube, which is only about 20% uh, of them, would be able to see that we're actually smiling quite broadly. This is actually quite fun. At least yeah. I hope you agree. And uh, so uh, this sort of jousting, I, th I think you may not come across, it may come across as bad tempered on the, on the podcast. It's really not. not but bad. I think I, what bad. I would say is I've spent 20 years, you know, in this space and I have personally met... I'm going to say tens of thousands of people, you know, incredibly creative and innovative. Um, and there are around the world hundreds of thousands or even millions to provide boring, cheap electricity. And I totally agree. That, you know, but, well, it, what it should be is boring, uh, cheap, resilient, and of course, also sustainable electricity requires just the vastest levels of innovation. Uh, because everything that was in that old CEGB system of coal, nuclear, and some oil, uh, which then became gas, that's all gone. And the world is so incredibly complex. It, it, we want a boring outcome from a very complex and innovative system. And I'm struggling to see a single state-owned model that has delivered that. Oh, yes. I mean, there's no doubt that it hasn't happened yet. But then again, just because something hasn't happened yet doesn't mean that it's not the right way to, of going. Right. I mean, if, uh, let me not be, be populist now and mention other realms of thought. Um, the, look, the point I'm making is this. You and I agree on a number of things. One of them is that whatever grid we have, it should leave room and space for innovators to come in, do snazzy things, try this, try that, you know, improve the efficiency of the system at the margin. And if you have lots of them improving the system at the margin, then the whole system is going to become far more efficient. Uh, the question is, who owns the large components of the system? Uh, do you start with um, a system like we have now and you try to regulate yourself towards some kind of... Um, Social justice to begin with, you know, you know the fact that the, the people out there are paying huge, you know, huge prices for kilowatt hours that were produced very cheaply. Do you do this through the regulating the market, or do you follow my cue, which is to say there shouldn't have been a market on these things. These things should be publicly owned, and then within that network, which is publicly owned, you have um, neighborhood um, systems, and you have privateers that are encouraged to come in and try their own luck with the system. Uh, they're given enough room in which to develop their own technologies and innovations. Uh, so it's, it's in the end, Michael, I have no doubt that it boils down to ideology. I cannot prove that you're wrong and you cannot prove that I'm wrong. But that's, you know, these, these are the, all the big political questions are exactly like that. It's like, you know, philosophy. A rationalist can never prove an empiricist wrong and an empiricist can never prove a rationalist wrong. You know, it's a fact of philosophy. Maybe we should run a poll, you know, in parallel with this episode and then we let the, let the viewers decide. But what's fascinating to me is this is, um, to me, this is also part of um, kind of the latest round of uh, revolution versus reform. Herbert Marcuse versus Karl Popper. Do we need to kind of break what we've got or can we, you know, what, to, what gives the best outcomes? Is it, you know, is it breaking what we've got and build something new or is it 
tweaking, uh, modifying what we've got. And, you know, I think, you know, you, I'm clearly, you know, you've called your article time to blow up electricity, not time to reform them, which is kind of what I'm saying. Um, sure. That's the difference. What, what, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was a, a rebel in the sense that she blew up what existed. Yeah. Right? Uh, and I'm saying that, 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 that what she created is now blowing itself up. <laughs> uh, and we, yeah. we, sticky plaster is not going to do it. And for yeah. me, uh, uh, regulation is sticky plaster. And yeah, I want to move on. Don't, don't, forget, about... don't forget also, you know, the, the, the whole thing about um, regulatory capture. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to, to say that the state should regulate. But what is the state? The state is a bunch of bureaucrats and politicians, uh, you know, whose... Um, um, interests sometimes align with those of the regulated. I think if we got onto regulatory capture, and if we got onto corruption, yeah. and if we got onto um, uh, vote buying, particularly in the US, I think you would find that we are there's there's probably not even a cigarette paper between us in terms of our concerns. But yeah. I wanted to use the final few minutes um, just to talk about the broader sort of political environment within which this is playing out. You founded your own political party, um, but it's uh, it's unusual because you immediately were trying to create it as a, Europe a pan-European movement or a multi-country party, um, which is very ambitious, but you've also said uh, that you don't give a damn if it fails. Mm -hmm. So are you ambitious for it? Are you, are you, you know, are you um, a trickster and a joker? Or are you really trying to change the politics of Europe? Well, whether I'm a trickster and joker is not for me to answer. It's for you know the audience <laughs> and for the wider public and the voters and the voters. Let's not forget the voters. Now, look, um, a preface first. Especially this country, which is bankrupt and small and has a tradition of corruption, the discussion we're having is not even interesting. Because the, there are five oligarchs that own the electricity power generation and power distribution. And they are the same gentlemen who own all our television channels and every single newspaper. Need I say more? <laughs> they can, do you see what I mean? The uh, intellectual discussion like the one we're having is besides the point. It's, you know, us together caring about efficiency versus the brute force of an oligarchy that cares only about owning everything. Um, now, I very much fear that this is a, a generalized situation these days in the European Union, across the European Union, uh, not as bad as it is in Greece, but the Greek disease is, as always, spreading uh, across the continent. And unless we have uh, a political movement that can speak to the minds and hearts of the Germans, the Austrians, the French, the Italians, the Spaniards, and the Greeks, since we are a European Union and we'll have a common, a, a common directive regarding to electricity markets and you know banking and, and all that, uh, then politics is simply never going to succeed in overcoming the inertia and the brute force of um, business interests that are very much aligned and very much coordinated along cartel lines across Europe. So... Um, I strongly believe that if politics is going to be relevant in Europe, in the European Union, it, we need to develop transnational political parties. It's very hard to even, I'm, I'm, you're right, it's, 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 it's a tough ask. And, you know, 
We're starting a new political party now in Italy on the 12th of November. Um, it's hard yak, as the Australians say. It's hard work. And it may fail. But it is my strong conviction that it's the only thing that can work. That nationally-based political parties that often you know, issues manifesto, manifestos to different national audiences and offer all sorts of things to them and all sorts of promises, which when they get into power, they cannot deliver because it's a transnational pan-European system and national governments can simply not uh, find solutions that are um, good for Italy, but not good for Europe, good for Greece, but not good for Europe. So for me to sum up, transnational pan-European political parties like the one we try to create is the last chance of democracy in Europe. May it fail? Of course it may fail. Do I care whether it fails? I care whether it fails or not. But the fact that there is a very strong probability that what we are trying to do is going to fail is no argument for not doing it. In that sense, I don't give a damn. <laughs> so if I rephrase, or let me see if this is um, aligned, that this um, during the Brexit debate, there was always this question, you know, the, the Remainers thought that Europe was dem democratic and the Leavers, of whom I was a sort of mild version of one, um, said it's, it's not. And mm. my view is that it was that Europe, the EU is not democratic because there isn't a demos. There isn't, you know, there's no, no way that you could have a movement spread from Germany through the rest of Europe or from Italy or from Greece that could change the government. And the fundamental um, test of democracy is can you change the government? And the answer is within the EU proven over decades, the answer is essentially no. The people can't change the government because there is no shared demos. So is that what, is that another way of, is that, are you, is that the problem you're sort of trying to solve here? Yeah, yeah. And look, I agree with you and I agreed with you. Uh, and however, my point was back in the, during the pre-referendum campaign in which I participated as a weird, Remainer, weird remainer, uh, was the yes, you know, somebody like Mike is absolutely right. But that is a good argument for not creating the European Union the way we created it. It's not a good argument for exiting it, given that we've been in it for 45 years. Uh, <laughs> even though I now, had a lot of sympathy with leavers. Yeah, so now you were the reformer and mm. I was the I was See? the revolutionary See? in that situation. See? So the tables See? were turned. Yeah, just I didn't think that it was a good revolution to have. Uh, I, th I thought it was too much wasted energy on a rebellion that would only create a lot of toxicity within Britain, uh, as it did. It still does. Um, and I'd never thought that, th that, that the people who were promoting Brexit had what it takes to make Brexit work, even if Brexit succeeded. And I very much fear that, that turned out to be the case. Uh, look at you know, Liz Truss today. Um, she's really not, you know, let, let's forget my argument that you should have stayed in. Let's say that, okay, what is done is done. I'm a Democrat. So from the first moment the referendum yielded the Brexit outcome, I supported Brexit only because I, be, I supported the view of the people, right? I was against all the other remainers who wanted a second referendum and so on. But if you look at the current prime minister and Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson was all over the place, but this current prime minister, doesn't have a plan for making Brexit work. What is the plan? Well, she, she, she had a plan. 
She, she had a plan until no, last no, week, but then I think it got torn up. That wasn't the plan for Brexit. Yeah. You know, lowering, lowering corporate tax rates and income tax rates could have been done within the European Union. That, had, that was irrelevant. If she, any plan for making Brexit work would, would have to be about regulation of the government, artificial intelligence. It would have to be about, um, you know, um, uh, all, all the differences between yeah. British commercial law and EU commercial law that would allow Britain to steal, you know, um, a few steps in the race on the future technologies vis-a-vis -vis the European Union. But she had no such plan, did she? We have a long and very interesting conversation. I'm on the Board of Trade. I actually worked with Liz Truss when she was the Secretary of State for uh, Trade. And, um, you know, I watched her as she rolled over the deals that people said couldn't be rolled over, uh, as she did actually a digital trade deal with Singapore, the most advanced um, mm. digital trade, in fact, the only digital trade deal in the world. So, you know, there is something there, but it, I don't want to overtrade it because, you know, we are where we are. But I wanted to ask you one final question because I promised yeah. you that I would get you out at the top of the hour. So, um, DM, is that how you pronounce it? DM25. Mm -hmm. Will there be, this is the most important question, will there be a UK affiliate or franchise, as I would call it in business speak? We have 10,000 members in the UK. Uh, but because, but, but we're never going to create a party in the UK because you have something called first past the post, right? It would be suicide. So what we have been doing for years now, we've been working with uh, progressives across Europe, uh, sorry, across Europe, across the UK. For instance, we launched a campaign that you may have heard of, but you'll see DiEM25 only in the small print, even though we launched it. Uh, Save our NHS campaign. That, that's our campaign. That's a DiEM25 campaign in the, the UK. So we're very active in the UK. We've been active for, for a very long, long time. We have um, strong connections with people in the Labour Party. Caroline Lucas of, you know, the, the Brighton MP is a member of ours and a great friend of mine personally. Uh, we've been working with some people in the Liberal Democrats, uh, with people in the SNP, with communities uh, up in the north of England. Uh, but we're working at the grassroots le level, uh, nothing posh and nothing large scale because of your electoral system. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, um, the good news there is hopefully that brings you to the UK from time to time. And when you are here, um, if you want to tear into the areas where we disagree, or if you want to enjoy and explore the areas where we do agree, uh, I'll be more than happy to, uh, to do that over a glass of wine. It's a great pleasure talking to you, Yanis. Thank you very much. I really, truly enjoyed this, Michael. Very good. Thanks for joining us here on Cleaning Up. So that was Yanis Varoufakis, left-wing economist, firebrand and politician who believes that the whole electricity system is a natural monopoly and should be nationalised. We'll be taking a week off next week and we'll be back after the break with a very special guest. It's a great opportunity for you to catch up with some of the back catalogue of extraordinary guests that we've had here on Cleaning Up. So please join me in two weeks time back here on Cleaning Up. Cleaning Up is brought to you by Capricorn Investment Group, the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation.